How long have you been out here? What's that got to do with it? Well, not a heck of a lot, I suppose. But you talk like it's a football game, and this is no football game, Lieutenant. It's one long, hard gut ache with a lot of torn-up, mangled guys, and it's going to take a long time for us to forget it. You have to remember, Lieutenant, you haven't been shot at yet. And you haven't shot anybody either. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And I hope you guys uh, found an exit last week um, out the top of a, I don't know, a donation barrel. And now you're, you know, free to wander around as a toy. I, I got nothing. Yeah. yeah. With your steal your joke from Facebook. Uh, we found our conversation. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like you, you said, uh, like, um, like two podcasters in search of an audience. And that, that stung a lot. That's why I had to say that was a mad burn. So yeah, um, that, that's, that's fair. Like you, the, no, no, we have an, we have an audience, but it was just like, I just like, it was like, yep, that that's about right. So anyway, yeah, well, I feel like any podcast podcaster, you feel like you're speaking into the void sometimes. So, um, yeah, I always feel, in search of an audience. I, I do feel like I am a podcaster. that that's probably the best way to put that. It's like, there's just a pause and who knows what happens anyway. I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion last week about five characters in search of an exit. Um, surprisingly great episode. Not that that was not that the episode itself wasn't great. Just, I had not seen it. So I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Um, good talk. Uh, this episode, uh, we're talking about now a quality of mercy season three, episode 15, uh, air dates. I mean, you know what I was gonna mention air date, but we have some news actually. Should we get the news before we get to talking about a quality of mercy? Yeah, why, why don't we do that? Yeah, that's me just destroying the format of the show. Um, so we're recording this on October 4th. Uh, two days ago was actually the 59th anniversary of the initial airing of The Twilight Zone, uh, uh, episode one, Where Is Everybody? Uh, and so to celebrate that, aside from the fact that it's awesome and I should have probably been paying attention, and I wasn't, it took another website to point that out to me. And it's funny because all we do is talk about Twilight Zone, and I, I don't know things. Um the the new uh, Jordan Peele produced and hosted Twilight Zone started production as of two days ago as well. So that's kind of awesome. Yeah. And uh, I'm eating my words because I thought it wouldn't even happen. And I said I would reserve judgment until I saw it happening. And here we are. It's in production. So I guess we're actually the world is actually going to see a new Twilight Zone series. Yeah. Again, <laughs> I just I will be excited when they start releasing like directors, writers and like synopsis. That will be yeah. interesting. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. I have no doubt that Jordan Peele is going to surround himself with uh, great people. Um, he seems like somebody who uh, strives for greatness, even with uh, uh, Key and Peele, their skit show. They 
basically called it quits after the three seasons because they felt like they weren't going to be able to come up with enough enough content that was good enough to hit their quality Mm -hmm. standards. So I feel like he's somebody who has that like, I'm not going to do it unless I can do the best I can with it. So I'm I'm excited to see. Like I said, I have no doubt he's going to surround himself with the best people. But uh, like like you're saying, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see who he gets. And I think my excitement is definitely going to hinge on who is involved with the show. Yeah, and even like he did a uh, interview with, uh, with Variety um, a couple months ago, talking about like like Get Out and uh, other things he's been working on in this, and how this was like brought to him like a couple different times, and he was like worried about like he's like I can't do Twilight Zone like that's that's too big and too it's too monumental and it's too important, and eventually you know being brought to him enough times, he you know like took on the challenge, and I think that's great that that people kept repeatedly being like, you know what, you're going to say no now, but it's going to sink in eventually. And then there was also the concern about who hosts it. And I think he's going to be an excellent host, like being the front face of the Twilight Zone. I think it's perfect. Like I'm really, I, I just, cause we, we talk about Rod Sterling all the time in terms of like, you know, his, his kind of, he has his own charisma, he has his own gravity. And he also, you know, he, he has a bit of a sense of humor. I mean, sometimes his humorous episodes aren't great, but you could tell he has a sense of humor. And I feel like with like with, with Jordan Peele, he's like, it, it, the, you know him from his humor. And so I think he's going to find ways to, I, I don't know, like not wink at the camera, but know the show he's doing and then give gravity what needs gravity and then have fun with what needs to have fun. Because if this, if this revival doesn't go often to have a little bit more, not absurd is not the right word, but has fun with some of the episodes, then I feel like maybe it's missed its mark. And I feel like it's going to, I feel like that it wouldn't be the twilight zone without having a little bit of fun with it. Yeah. Cause I mean, we, we have black mirror, like <laughs> the thing exists and that's what, you know, everyone, everyone that's commenting on this new twilight zone series is like black mirror is twilight zone. Now, like you guys are too late. <laughs> I don't, agree but, with I, that, I but I feel yeah. like, uh, what was that? I don't agree with that. I mean, like I know, no, I, I yeah. don't, I think there's definitely room for, there's always room for more stories to be told, but yeah. you know, people like to put things in boxes and everything, but I feel like having the serious anthology TV show like that, like black mirrors kind of got that covered. Like I'm hoping that he does bring some comedy into it and I'm not saying every episode, but I hope it has the kind of, uh, um, breadth that this, that the original Twilight Zone has, where you have these serious episodes, you have these terrifying episodes, you have these uh, quote unquote funny episodes. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that it has this variety of genres that this original did so they can actually have fun, like you're saying, when they need to. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very excited. And it's just, it's really interesting to me. The, and, this is not where I expected Jordan Peele's career to go after mm-hmm. Get Out, but he is definitely going to be leading the charge the next year or two on genre TV because he's also, I think, producer. He might be doing some writing on that Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country. Oh yeah, no, you're right. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's got two shows in development right now. I think Lovecraft Country is wrapped. I think they're in post production, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting. I did not expect him to jump right back into TV after the critical and um, uh, not even critical, but just monetary success that Get Out had. Yeah, and then there's also um, oh, what's he producing as well? It's coming, and he's directing that that film Us, which is like his yeah. next like social horror film. Or what, there, there's not a lot of details, but people are thinking it's going to be like you know 
it's his follow up to get out and then not like a true sequel, but like he's going to take, you know, the, the mirror of society, which I mean, get out wouldn't exist without the twilight zone, like in the sense of being able to set the stage and have like this really tense, thrilling story, but have like the, like the complete social commentary. Right. So like, this is, I, I'm, this, yeah, like, I'm really it's, excited. It's, yeah. it's Adam age sci-fi that uh, dealt with the, uh, uh atomic threat constantly um which ended up bleeding into twilight zone and everything that uh really informed get out and all that just yeah. having the social commentary mixed through the eyes of a uh, science fiction screenplay so yeah definitely i'm i i'm i'm interested to see what this twilight zone is going to be hopefully it's better than the early 2000s one because the- oh, come on <laughs> forrest whitaker was the host how can you be go wrong with that right like uh and Catherine yeah. Heigl was a nanny that went back to try to kill Hitler or something. That was like the only episode I saw of the of the CW version of the Twilight Zone. Which, if if we're if we're worth anything while doing this, we need to find some of that and watch it. Maybe not like sequentially, but we need to find some of that and see how the see like if even like you know if it's good enough for television. Like, but I just remember like if Forrest Whitaker liked it and was in like every episode, it can't be it can't be the worst thing, right? I mean. Maybe I don't know. I just yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, that's news, like Twilight Zone news, like from a show that's fifty nine years old now. Um, we should come back back in time to Quality of Mercy air date December twenty ninth, nineteen sixty one. We were on the cusp of finishing out nineteen sixty one um, for for whatever reason. That's like uh, it's exciting. We're moving into the sixties further. Uh, number one film is that uh, El Cid. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. That's Charlton Heston playing a Spaniard. So I, I guess that's good. Um, number one song. Well, is, it kind of it kind of ties into our episode tonight. A little bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> I mean, like how? Like I can I just can't imagine Charlton Heston just being like with like makeup and prosthetics. I just can't ever imagine him just being like, okay with that. Like, can you, can you imagine uh, John Wayne as Mongolian? (laughs) (laughs) Well, didn't Charlton Heston, didn't he play a part in the Tim Burton plan of the apes? Wasn't he one of the, the, like, like they put him in for a second as one of the, 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 the gorilla people or something. If I remember right, maybe I'm wrong. Cause I think he was still around at the time. What I haven't, I haven't actually watched that one. So I don't know. Um, anyway, um, Number one song from the air date of this episode is uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight by The Tokens. Great song. Um, I couldn't find anything n- newsworthy from the 29th. Uh, December 30th, there's an uh, author that I enjoy a great deal named Douglas Copeland, who was born. I don't know if you're familiar with Douglas Copeland at all or not. Uh, give me some titles, maybe. He wrote the book called Generation X that inadvertently tagged uh, Generation X. Like, that's oh, kind of okay. like his, okay. yeah, his yeah, big I, uh, claim to obviously. fame. Um, I know that book. I I haven't read it, but it's a great book. Uh, it's like because he always has like these like it's his his stuff always there's there's great emotion and feeling to it, but he has like a really like dark wit about some of the stuff he writes. And with Generation X, the book's very easy to read, but in the corners of the pages, there's like all these different definitions. Uh, like one of them, I I always think of is called an emotional catch up burst where it is like you hold everything in, like what's really bothering you. And then someone says the wrong thing. that's unrelated. And you just like erupt. And it's like an emotional catch up burst where it's like what you're freaking out about really isn't what you're upset about, but it's, it's the, it's the pin that pricked it. 
You know, yeah. like so. There's a lot of that. Um, he's written some really great books. Generation X. Uh, one of my favorites of his is called Girlfriend in a Coma, um, which is actually kind of a sci-fi book. It's about a group of friends in the 70s. One of them ends up in an accident on a ski lift, ends up in a coma until the 90s. So when she wakes back up again, she, even though she's 20 years older, she hasn't, you know, it's still like she's getting like up to speed with what's going on. And all her friends have kind of grown up and kind of all gotten jaded. And then in the meantime, because of her waking up, there's causing these weird things where the world's falling asleep. Like, and it's just like this, like really weird, like sci-fi notion of like her waking up and seeing the world for what it is and realizing it's not the same thing as it was 20 years ago. And it's, it's, it's a very much an allegory for like optimism and youth, but like the yeah. whole thing is kind of this notion of like people are just like falling asleep. Like they're like at the grocery store doing their thing and they just crawl into the freezer aisle and they just fall asleep and that's it. Like they don't wake back up. And it's just the whole notion of like, it's very on the nose of like, wake up. But it's yeah. also this like love letter to the Smiths. Like there's so many references to the Smiths. It's a really really good book. I, I like it. I'm not I'm not a big like I don't know the Smiths that well, but I love Girlfriend in a Coma. So it's a really cool book. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. It, it's it's a good book. Like, it's just it's very it, it goes it goes from like oh it's a character study to oh the world's ending. Like it's very like <laughs> like abrupt, you know. But he also he's written some other books like Life After God, which I've enjoyed a great deal. Um, it's just very quotable. And it's like, I don't, did you ever have that thing like, like in your early twenties that for some reason never occurred to you before until you read it and they like set your brain on fire like that, like oh, waking yeah. up as an adult. Yeah. yeah. A lot of like Kurt Vonnegut and yeah. stuff I was reading yes. when yeah. I was around 20. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. You know, I, I think I own a copy of life after God. I think you gave it to uh, <laughs> my wife like years ago. I never read it though. I forced on everybody. Sure she, That's my religion. I'm pretty sure she read it, but okay. I never, I never got around to reading it, it but I turned around and I was like, yep, there it is. Yeah. It's on the shelf. Well, there, there's, there's a segment in that book where the one character, like there's, it's all these vignettes. And this one guy is like, he's with, with a friend that he knew years ago. And they're like wandering through this, like, you know, pine forest near this dam. And the girl that he's with is a little, a little aloof. And then she tells him to stop. And she's like, you know, if we stand perfectly still, we can stop time. And he was like, here I am in the woods, like in my late thirties, trying to stop time. And it seems like a silly concept on the note, like on the surface, but it's that moment of dislike, you know, everything's like, you know, pristine for this one second, let's hang on to it as much as we can. And that really resonated with me. And then he also makes the statement that no matter what happens later in your life, um, it will never be cool as that one time that you threw all the furniture in the swimming pool when you were 20. Like there's this whole notion of like, <laughs> like these big moments being super important when you're younger that, that will never have the same impact if they happen to you later, you know? So like Copeland is very much good at like looking backwards and kind of acknowledging like, you know, the, the, the tragedy and the triumphs of growing up. And I, I just, his books were great and they were just the right place, right time for me as I was growing up. Nice. I'll, I'll have to add that uh, Life After God, throw it on the top of my pile here for this winter to read. Yeah, it's, it's real quick. It's like it's a real easy to read. But anyway, yeah, so Douglas nice. Copeland was born the day after this episode aired. So for what it's worth, check out Douglas Copeland. That's not this <laughs> podcast, but I like him a lot. Hey, that's why we never know where we're going to end up on the show. That's why I love it. You know, we talk about Twilight Zone, but we end up on these tangents that... Uh, I, I really enjoy. Yeah. So we'll jump into cast and crew here. This episode was directed by Buzz Kulik, who we've talked about countless times on the show. Uh, if you want to hear us talk about his career in full, you can go all the way back to King Nine Will Not Return. Uh, most recently, I think the 
last episode we covered of his was a game of pool. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to have two more coming up in the future. So this isn't the last time we'll we'll see a Buzz Kulik episode. Yeah. Uh, episode was written by Rod Serling, but was based on an idea by Sam Rolfe, who was a uh, TV writer and producer. Uh, I was excited because I just picked up the entire series of Man from Uncle. And he was the mm-hmm. main writer for season one. I think he wrote all of season one and was the producer for that show. Um, even wrote for Girl from Uncle, which was the spinoff um, that ended up happening. But uh, fun thing I never knew, he also produced uh, Have Gun, Will Travel, yeah. the Western show. But he did the theme song for it, Ballad of Paladin. Oh, and I know so, that because of the movie Stand By Me. Like, I, I know yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, like, it, I when I saw that credit for that song title, it didn't it didn't click for me. I went on YouTube and watched the or listened to it and uh, it immediately. Yeah. Stand by me. And I just knew the song just from being a Western fan stuff. It's always on playlists and uh, all the CD collections and stuff with all the Western themes and everything. Uh, but yeah, he was the uh, he was the writer. And I think it was. Uh, um, what was it? Uh, Boone, the. The uh, singer from the 50s. Pat Boone? Uh, Pat Boone, I think it was that yeah. uh, that performed it initially, but I could be mistaken okay. on that. Um, no, but, Pat Boone, yeah, no, so no, I, no. Is Pat Boone, is Pat Boone the, the, the sister? Is that not, that's not right. There, there's, um, I'm going to mess that up. I'm going to look it up right now. Um, Pat Boone. <laughs> here we go. This is going to be me getting facts wrong. A staple of our show here. Uh, no, that's him. That's him. Okay, great. I was worried for a second that I got my gender wrong, but uh, Pat Boone is. The, I think uh, that's who you're talking no, about. No, I'm I'm confusing that the uh, Richard Boone, I think, was the main actor of Have Gun Will Travel. Oh. By mistaking that, but I think he did sing it too. But interesting, because there's Debbie Boone. That like so yeah, I was getting, I was yeah, getting okay. all over the. Okay, anyway, I got my Boons mixed up. But anyway, so. <laughs> There's um, a lot of boons going on. There's here. a lot of boons, a lot of <laughs> a lot of questionable boon business going on here. Uh, so I wanted to mention about Sam Rolfe. There's something I'll save till later, and please remind me about him because it, 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 I want to mention it after the episode. But he had an unsold pilot for a TV show called Hurricane Island, and it was about a group of castaways on an island inhabited by dinosaurs and assorted other terrors. That sounds like 1961's version of Lost, and I want to watch that so bad. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, man, I, I hate, I, I love and hate hearing about projects that were never completed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those what ifs, you know? And he, uh, uh also wrote some episodes of uh, next generation and deep space nine. So there's your, uh, star Trek. Wait, no, I'm sorry. There's another star Trek connection here very soon. Oh yeah. There, there's a big one coming <laughs> up. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was really excited. I've been in a, I usually get in a spy kick, uh, in November after Halloween, for some reason, things just always click with me. I end up watching a bunch of James Bond movies, a bunch of Euro spy films. And, uh, I started watching the saint recently. I started watching, uh, something else too. I can't remember what I was just watching the other day. Um, Oh, danger man. And, uh, I was like, you know, what? I'm going to start man from uncle. So I, I picked up the series and I'm about to start that. So when I saw that he was one of the main leading people, uh, behind the scenes for the show, I was kind of excited. Nice. So, jump into cast here. We have your uh, main character, uh, Dean Stockwell, as the lieutenant. Uh, most people, I think, would know him. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that because I think people know him from a lot of places. Uh, he was one of the main characters in Quantum Leap. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so, he, uh, he was uh, Al Calavici, uh, just known as Al. Uh, he so uh, Kevin informed me that he did not watch Quantum Leap much growing up. So before we start recording, and I feel like that's a gross oversight. Uh, Quantum Leap. I just something about the notion of um, of Scott Bakula's character, who um, you know uh, Sam Beckett. Uh, find like, he has a string theory of that his uh, his life from the moment he's born until like whenever he dies that he's able to move across that timeline and he jumps into this like accelerator to prove his theory that he can move across this thing and the whole episodes are always different time timelines different situations and he has Al as a companion who is like he's anchored in the the time in which Sam leapt out and he's a holographic representation and he has like basically a smartphone which is like really ahead of its time kind of giving details about the history of where he's at and potential for why he's there it's and almost so, like I've only played one of them, but uh, Assassin's Creed. A little bit, yeah. No, that's fair. Like, yeah. but trying to like do the like, yeah. So, but the whole thing is like, there's times where I've only, I've only played the pirate one, so I don't know if all <laughs> the games are like that or what. But. Yeah, no, no, you're right. <laughs> Dealing with like going back and visiting past like timelines and things, yeah. Uh, and so the whole thing is like, you know, he has to kind of fix something that they, they try to figure out that didn't go well before, like, you know, a divorce or like, you know, someone died when they shouldn't like, they, like early or whatever. Um, or he leaps into Elvis, which had happened later in the seasons. Uh, you know, like there's all these moments that like basically based upon like on uh, the, the supercomputer that they, they deal with the process. All this is named Ziggy. That's in this handheld that Al has, but Al's like his companion. Like he's the one that's there that only Sam could see because he's like a, like a holographic projection in like Sam's mind. And so like Sam can be all over the timeline, but he can see Al. And so Dean Stockwell's Al was very endearing because there's only two main characters in the show. And so you got to have the guy that's helping him, but can't physically alter the outcome because he's a hologram. It's, it's just, I I love quantum leap. It's just, it's, it's one of the, like you, like how many shows out there um, that are like well done that are all about trying to affect a positive outcome, you know, like, so there's drama, there's suspense, there's action, but it's always trying for the greater good. And it's not done in like a highway to heaven or touched by an angel kind of way. It's just more like Sam wants to do well, but he needs to make sure things go right because if he doesn't, he might be stuck where he's at. So I, I love Quantum Leap. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I feel like I'm going to get a lot of uh, flack for not watching the show <laughs> and admitting it on the air. But, yeah, it's uh, yeah. yeah, it can't watch everything, right? That's fair, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you're going to mention so, yeah. three things of Adim Sockwell's that I've not seen, so please. <laughs> go All on. right, so my three favorite uh, films that he starred in, Blue Velvet, I've David I've not Lynch. seen that. I don't know what that is. No, I'm joking. I've not still yeah. not seen it, but I know what it is. <laughs> Yeah, he he's got a fantastic scene in that movie. He's not in the he's not in the whole thing, but uh, he definitely steals the scene uh, that he's in singing Roy Orbison. Um, He's in To Live and Die in L.A., the William Friedkin film. Okay, I don't know if you've seen that one. I have not. I need to. (laughs) Oh, that's a fantastic movie. Um, And then Vin Vendor's Paris, Texas. Oh, I've not seen that either. Yeah. Yeah, which is a very depressing movie, but I absolutely love it. Um, then uh, he was also in Dune, the David Lynch uh, oh, <laughs> film. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Uh, another um, 
two additional things about uh, <laughs> Dean Stockwell. I get well. I guess I should mention that he's he was a child actor, and so he's had like varying like swells and like drops in his career. So like he's had like three different points where he's been successful and then bottomed out. So it was kind of interesting. Like he was a child actor and then kind of kind of came into like another swell, which we're going to get into like his performance here. And then later on, like with Blue Velvet and everything else, he kind of came back into the forefront. Um, so after Quantum Leap, he was also in Battlestar Galactica, the reboot of that, playing Brother Cavill. And he is just so good and so evil in that series that it's just like, it's hard for me to watch that and be like, but that's Al. That's not Al, you know? So <laughs> he's really good in that. Um, so also when he was growing up being a child actor, he didn't want to do all those films because he didn't like crying all the time. And every child role he was put in was crying. So he said, uh, um, there was a point where he'd find out what he's going to do another movie. And, um, his mother's, his mother would always bring him the news. And the first question he would ask is, is there a crying scene in this movie? And there almost always was, <laughs> uh, and he was in playoffs 92, which I'm sure that put him on Sterling's radar, but I, I love Dean Stockwell. Yeah, I, I heard that as Playhouse 92. I was like, what, what is that? <laughs> yeah, it's, is that a different it's the one? reboot. <laughs> yeah, it's a Playhouse 92, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. What happened in 91? <laughs> uh, I didn't go so well, but yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway. And there was the other 89 yeah. Playhouses before that we didn't hear anything about, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah his scene singing uh, Roy Orbison in Blue Velvet is it's amazing. All right, it's, well. it's what... It's what I picture Dean Stockwell doing every time I see him. I, I will so make this definitely promise. go back and check that out. I will watch Blue Velvet before the end of the year. That will be that's my promise. I'll get through it before twenty eighteen okay. out. So I will say that. So fair enough. All right. Next up, we have Albert Salmi, who plays Sergeant Cors- Corserano, who uh, we previously discussed him all the way back in the episode Execution. He mm-hmm. plays the uh, hanged man Joe Caswell in that episode. Yeah, still sweaty, still talks a little weird, but it was fun to see him. I liked him. Yeah, he's got a good face. I like him a lot. (laughs) Then he's he's got a good face. (laughs) He's got a good face for TV. I don't know. No, he's a very recognizable guy. Yeah, like he's he's very uh, recognizable, I guess, even for like a smaller role. Yeah, absolutely. Like the and, moment I heard for wearing a and for wearing a helmet and a uniform most of the time, where usually you wouldn't recognize somebody in that. Just the moment he started talking, I'm like, yeah, that's him. Like, because he has a very uh-huh. distinct delivery, and it was it was good to see him again, and it was good to see him not in a um, adversarial role. I mean, he was confrontational in the sense of what's going on in the episode, but he wasn't a bad guy. So it was good to see him kind of no. like work a different angle. Yeah. Yeah, and he was great in both these episodes. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to see what his uh, his third one will be. Um, I think that's next season, so it'll be a little bit of a wait till we see him again. Next up, we have Rayford Barnes, who plays Andrew Watkins. Who uh, this guy was in some interesting stuff. You got the Wild Bunch mm-hmm. and Breakheart Pass, which you just <laughs> recently covered uh, last year for your year of the Western. Yeah. Um, he was also in a movie called Death Hunt with uh, Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin. Oh, that I have not seen. That needs and, to happen. Uh, yeah, that, that's something I actually uh, added it to my watch list so I could check that thing out. <laughs> I see those two guys together. I'm I'm in. 
Uh, he's also in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and this was his only Twilight Zone appearance. Yeah, my two notes were Wild Bunch, Breakheart Pass. So, yeah, I was excited to, to talk about some Breakheart Pass for a second. Um, but, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that Death Hunt, though. I'm, that I'm sounds all awesome. in on that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Get those two actors together. Oh, yeah. That's, that sounds great. Uh, next up, we have Ralph. Man, I cannot remember. Votrian, who plays Hanacek. This was his only Twilight Zone appearance. I didn't really see much else for him. Yeah, he did a lot of TV. That's all I could find for him. Like, I feel yep. bad because this guy had a, like a, a full and rich career, and I'm just like, I don't know. But I couldn't really find anything that like like stuck out to me. Yeah. Uh, and then we have Leonard Nimoy as uh, oh man, Hanson. Yeah, never I heard wrote of Hannah check again. Never heard of Leonard notes. Nimoy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So uh, I think I think everybody knows who uh, Leonard Nimoy is. That's uh, Mr. Spock. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on. No, <laughs> but the, here's the thing: is like the like when I first watched this episode, like it it, it only took till like uh, the like the second or third time I saw him, I'm like, oh, that's Leonard Nimoy because it's like he's so young and he's he's a good looking dude, and it's like, but he didn't and his eyebrows were arched, but they weren't like you know that extreme like pointiness that like you know Spock has. So yeah. And he also is speaking with a little bit of like, you know, like an every guy accent because he's actually from Boston. I didn't know that he's from Massachusetts. And like you think about his Spock persona and how like it's 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 definitely not a Boston accent. So it's like it took me a second to realize I'm like, oh, shit, that's Spock. Like it was so weird to have that click into place to realize that like halfway through the episode, that's who that was. Yeah, there are two even Dean Stockwell in this. Yeah. Um, even when he's on screen. It took me like a good man, probably five minutes after he appeared on screen to realize I was like, "Oh, that's Dean Scott uh, Stockwell." And that's I didn't crazy. realize until but Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. I I actually had to reopen the episode and watch the episode just to get to find uh, Leonard Nimoy in it. I, I didn't yeah. even realize it the first time I watched it. I didn't realize it was Dean Stockwell until the end when they did a really like sharp close up of his eyes. Like that was like I'm like, oh, that's him. Like for some reason, because he was so young and so trim and he like, he had the helmet on the entire time for the most part. Like I couldn't, it was one of those things where I had a lot of like, oh yeah, moments while watching this episode. Yeah. Well, that's why when I was started doing research, I was like, Leonard Nimoy, <laughs> I had to go back <laughs> and rewatch just to find him. I mean, I um, think people forget like how much of a hot commodity he was because like he was a rising star and then, you know, he did Star Trek, but then he also did Mission Impossible. Um, you know, and he was, he released like, you know, some records. I know everyone remembers the Bilbo bag and stuff because it's so weird, but he was like on like Tiger Beat, like the guy, you know, he was all over the place. And then, and then he actually ended up directing like two or three movies. Um, maybe, maybe a few more, but not many, but the big one was three men and a baby. It was like a weird thing to be like Spock directed three men and a baby. Like, so he had commercial success as director. And then when they asked him about later in his life, he's like, yeah, I did that for a bit. I don't have interest anymore. It's like, he was like good at everything until he got bored with it. And then he would move on to something else. And he was like also related to Michael Bay later on, like because of marriage. I don't know if you know that or not. Huh. Um, no, I didn't know that because, uh, I forget the actual connection, but, uh, if you, so, uh, Leonard Nimoy was the voice of, um, uh, was it, uh, Oh, one of the, uh, one of the the bad guys, Gal- trans- Galvatron, Galvatron or yes, and the yeah. Transformers the animated movie. So then, uh, whenever they did uh, Transformers Dark of the Moon, uh, Michael Bay convinced uh, Nimoy to come out of like semi retirement to voice um, 
oh, uh, something prime. It was uh, like the, I forget the actual character's name, but he did a really good performance in that. And it was a nice callback to the Transformers animated film. So yeah, it was yeah. Galvatron, by the way, in the cartoon. Man, yeah, I'm but so, I forget the name. I'm of, so proud of myself for knowing that. Yeah, no, you're right. Cause like, yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not even that big of a Transformers fan. I don't know how I called it, <laughs> but yeah, it just, it was just like, he had, he had a great life in terms of like his output. And then there was, he actually wrote two different books. One early on saying, I am not Spock. And then like 30 years later, I am Spock. Cause I think he wanted to distance himself away from like just that one thing. And he, he's done plenty to where he's not that one thing. But whenever you say Leonard Nimoy, and then he also did, what was it? Um, Cosmos, right? Or uh, no, in search of like, he did the voiceover yeah, for that. Yeah. Search, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Not Cosmos, but like he, he did so much stuff, but it's like the one thing you think of is Spock, but like Spock's a very iconic character because he was the one trying to find humanity, but using logic. And that resonates with like science fiction and just like characters, you know? So I, you know, it, it's just interesting to see him in here with like a Boston accent working like a radio, like in the background of this episode. Yeah, I just always think it's uh, interesting to hear actors talk about when they do have that one iconic role that they're kind of known for it. And you can you can hear like a lot of actors appreciate that because, you know, that's like that's their career. That's what's putting food on their table. That's what's paying them, you know, but at the same time, being an artist you want to kind of stretch your legs and do other things. Mm-hmm. You want to spread your wings and, uh, you want, that might not be your favorite role, you know, but no, you have no, to give right. respect because that's what people love you as, you know? So it's always interesting. And even hearing people, um, uh, I forget the actor's name who was in, uh, zombie, um, the full chief film. Um, Oh my God. What was his name? Uh, hearing him talk, he was actually offered the role of James Bond. Um, Richard Johnson, I think it was, who plays the doctor. He was offered the role as James Bond. He turned it down just because he didn't want to be known as that for the rest of his hmm. life. But at the same time, like he's been a struggling actor for years. And if he would have taken that, like he's he's got plenty of credits to his name. And he's he's been consistently acting up until... Uh, uh, I, oh, he actually passed away in 2015. I didn't know that, but so he was been, acting. He's not been most acting past life. that. So what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize because oh. uh, his last credit was in 2007. I probably I probably met him around 2009 or so. Oh, but nice. like hearing him talk about like he had other things he wanted to do, and he knew that if he took the role of James Bond, that's what he would forever be known as. But at the same time, it's just like. I don't know how you turn down something like that. <laughs> right. And I, but, but it's yeah. just hearing actors kind of discuss roles like that, you know, that they just get pigeonholed in or that that's just what they're known as. And you can always kind of hear that depression in their voice when they discuss those characters <laughs> and then the eventual, uh, like them succumbing to, uh, to what it is eventually. Well, and I, I love that he wrote those two books. Have you seen, have you seen galaxy quest, right? Or have you not seen galaxy mm-hmm. quest? Like Alan I Rickman yeah. is, is basically a, a Leonard Nimoy surrogate playing Dr. Lazarus. And like yeah. his character is like this classically trained, like British actor. And he's just well, that's so it. That's upset. what Richard Johnson was too. You know, he did like, uh, all these things uh, like, uh, Shakespeare and stuff. And he was a very classically trained actor, but he did, he did like, zombie two 
by <laughs> Lucia Fulci and stuff, but like he wouldn't do James Bond for some reason. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, I mean, if, if that, I see, I understand the point. It's also weird to me now because I feel like in this, in this day and age that for the most part, that if someone's given an opportunity to play like a franchise actor and like a something, a franchise character, I should say, um, that they're also given an opportunity to still kind of flex their muscles elsewhere. So people yeah. aren't as pigeonholed into the things because like you have, um, like someone like Chris Hemsworth as being Thor, but you see him in other things. It isn't like he's just stuck playing like, <clears throat> like the muscly hero. Um, and yeah. then like, um, what was it? Uh, uh Benedict, Cumber- Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, like, you know, he's, he's playing like kind of like a lot of the similar things, but he's not just stuck being Sherlock or Dr. Strange, you know, like I, so maybe back then in the sixties, I could see easily how Leonard Nimoy and then even William Shatner also kind of fought against being just known as Kirk for a a long time, you know? So, yeah, yeah. I feel like Shatner somehow broke through it. Eventually now, (laughs) I mean, like most people just know Shatner is Shatner, you know, like obviously like he's captain Kirk forever, but like, when you think Leonard Nimoy, you think Mr. Spock. When you think, uh, <laughs> um, oh my God. Well, Patrick, what away. about Patrick Stewart? Like, do you just think of him as uh, Jean-Luc Picard or do you think of him as other things? You know, like, do you no, think I, of, I think him, I think of him as a Nazi in the green room, <laughs> <laughs> but he was also fighting against younger Chekhov there too. So, uh, yeah. 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 Um, but like um, you're right, but it's like, no, but like yeah. Shatner, like now I just think of Shatner as Shatner. So but it's, there was it's, a point it's in, weird how some people break through. Some people don't. There was a point in the late seventies when Shatner was like trying to just be Shatner and not, Kirk and that's why he ends up in like kingdom of the spiders and things. Right. So like there was a while there. Um, and I did yeah. not mean to make this into a shatter talk, but Nimoy is interesting because he was, <laughs> he had a lot of different irons in the fire and had a lot of different interests, but, and, and I feel like he made peace with Spock like later on. Right. So I think you're well, right. You kind of yeah. have to, yeah. uh, I mean, eventually I think you realize like this, uh, this is what people know me as like, this yeah. is what people you know, people connect to a certain character. That's that's just what happens. You have yeah. no control over it. You put that performance out there, and it there's nothing you can do. You know, <laughs> it's just like might as well cash in on it. Might as well appreciate what you have. I mean, how many actors go through? How many actors on the show do we talk about week by week? We're like, yeah, they did a bunch of TV work. <laughs> like they might have 200 credits to their name. Yeah, we're just like, yeah, they did a bunch. Like I like that we spent like. Five seconds about- on Ralph Vittorian. <laughs> You're like, yeah, a bunch of TV. Litter Nimoy, though. Let's talk 75 yeah, minutes about him. Like <laughs> We've talked 15 minutes now about Leonard Nimoy. So, I mean, yeah. as much as I was dismissive saying, that, like, it's Mr. Spock. Everybody knows him. At the end of the day, like, we just had a 15-minute conversation in 2018 about a performance he gave, what, 30, 30-some years ago? Yeah. So, it's, I mean, you, at some point, you have to make peace with that and be like, all right. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's always interesting to me, uh, seeing people, uh, just seeing how people connect. And I, it, being a fan of like weird fringe cinema and everything. And when you do get to see and meet, and I, I'm all excited because, uh, this weekend coming up is cinema wasteland here in Cleveland and they're doing a, my bloody Valentine reunion. But every year you get to meet these people from these films that these actors totally, forgot that there's even a fan base for and they're just shocked that people even remember these films yeah and um I, I, it's just it's 
it's always interesting to me to see how people respond to these. And, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of forgot where I was going with that, but well, just know that, that um, if, uh, you know, like, no, it's, it's, you're right. Like, so people kind of, they get like attached to thing. Not, not, not that they get attached, but they, you know, like even yeah, not to go further that with this connect where it's like something might not be important to that actor, but you never know who that's connecting with out there. So, I mean, like Spock, like that might not be his favorite thing he's ever done, but it connected with so many people that watch Star Trek that like, you have to respect at some point, you have to respect that that did connect and you, you have to make peace with that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, so so Spock's in this for right. yeah, a little bit. Yeah, anyway. Leonard Nimoy for like yeah. a second. <laughs> that was way more talk than we probably should have, but yeah. that's that's the only time he's ever going to pop up in this. So that's the only time we'll ever get to talk about Leonard yeah. Nimoy on the show. Um, so next up, we have uh, Dale Ishimoto, who plays Sergeant uh, Yamazaki, who uh, this guy, now we'll get into some <laughs> more of my stuff here. Uh, he was in Enter the Ninja, uh, which features Franco Nero mm-hmm. as a ninja. Um, so I, I've not I know seen that. Paul has recently been a convert into the world of Franco Nero performances. <laughs> it's going to be a ninja uh, with the prettiest blue eyes ever. That's why I need to watch that movie. <laughs> yes, yeah, he was also in Ninja 3, The Domination, which is a pretty terrible film, but uh, there's a lot of 80s fun to be had with that one. Nice. Uh, also, Beverly Hills Ninja. This guy wasn't typecast at all. No, uh, no. Um, three episodes of man from uncle. So I I think I'm seeing a connection of where he may have come from two episodes of Hawaiian eye. And this was his only twilight zone episode. Yeah. I I made sure I put down ninja three enter the ninja and Hawaiian eye. So we're, we're aligned there. So I'm glad that we found the important bits. I didn't put down Beverly Hills Ninja. I didn't look that far. And I just, if you'd have been like, Paul, how many connections are there to Chris Farley, the twilight zone? I'd have been like none, but I guess that's the, like, I guess I was wrong. Like, (laughs) There you go. I was just excited. Every time I get to bring up Franco Nero, I'm I'm pumped. Yeah. So enter the ninja. Uh, take it or leave it. I love it. <laughs> Next up, we have Jerry Fujikawa, who plays the Japanese captain, who is in one other Twilight Zone episode. And I wrote down Chinatown, just very famous film he was in. Yeah, um, that's all I got, too. So uh, did you have anybody else? Um, for yeah, So there's a Jeep driver in this. Um, I wrote down him because... This dude had a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. that was pretty interesting. Uh, Michael uh, Pataki. Mm-hmm. Pet, I Pataki, would assume I think, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, uh, he's the Jeep driver. He was in Halloween 4, Rocky 4, Graduation Day, did a bunch of cartoon voice actor. He was in the Dan, O'Bat- Dan O'Bannon written uh, film Dead and Buried, which is pretty fun. Got a short appearance from uh, Robert England. Uh, a movie Paul's been trying to get me to watch for the past two years, The Baby. Uh, he had a role in. Oh, that's right. He was the weirdo in the second half of that film. I forgot about that. He's like this yeah. weird, like hippie, drugged out guy. And yes, you need to see The Baby. Uh, I don't know why I didn't write that down. That is crazy. That movie just scarred me. And I've, I've made many people watch that. <laughs> I didn't write it down my notes. Thank you for calling that yeah, back so- because, yeah. Well, I saw Arrow Videos putting out like a beautiful edition on Blu-ray of that movie. So <laughs> maybe I'm I'll good. find a copy of that soon. I'm good with the one Blu-ray edition that you uh, sniped out. and Because like, I remember talking about Cinema Wasteland. I was like, well, if I find a copy of the baby, I'll buy it. And you're like, it's right over there. And I'm like, God damn it. And I went over and bought it. <laughs> um, but yeah, Michael Pataki, uh, he's all like you mentioned Rocky Four. He was like the manager of, uh, of um, Drago. 
in that. So he was like the the one guy. And then also I want to mention he was the lead in Zoltan the Hound of Dracula, which I mentioned back in season one, and I need to mention again. And which doesn't deal with Dracula. Doesn't mention Dracula. The movie's about the Hound of Dracula. So yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he was in one Hawaiian eye. Uh, I don't know if I already said only Twilight Zone. And then he actually directed a movie I think I own from 1976 called Mansion of the Doomed. Hmm. Um, it was it was something we had in our budget bin when I used to work at FYE. And um, I've never watched it, but I feel like this is the chance to uh, check it out. But it's got Lance Henriksen in it from 1976. So. Um, yeah, I'm kind of. I feel like Lance Henderson, like even would still look like Lance Henderson. Then, like I don't think there's a, a oh, young. Yeah, he still looked like he was sixty. <laughs> <laughs> he just went sixty since he's the time still, he was born. He already had like the age lines on his face. It's just like you're fine with that. It's fine, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that we mentioned yeah, that. So. A, lot of, a lot of interesting like cult film stuff within uh, <laughs> this character who was in the episode for maybe one second. And I didn't realize he was even a character until I looked at the cast list and I'm like, God damn Zoltan the Hound of Dracula. But good yeah, good call. Good call on the baby. Because <laughs> he is prominent as a weirdo in like the last like third of that film. So yeah, I don't know why. I guess I blanked on it because I, you know, I'm trying to block parts of that film out of my head. Maybe that's what's going on. So, yeah. All right. All right so, yes. 40 minutes in, uh, we'll let Sterling take it away. Yeah, I like that we're like longest uh, <laughs> casting crew segments we've ever done. I don't yeah. know what's happening. Yeah. All right. Let's just see if we can get through this. It's August 1945. The last grimy pages of a dirty, torn book of war. The place is the Philippine Islands. The men are what's left of a platoon of American infantry whose dulled and tired eyes set deep in dulled and tired faces can now look toward a miracle. That moment when the nightmare appears to be coming to an end. But they've got one more battle to fight. And in a moment, we'll observe that battle. August 1945, Philippine Islands. But in reality, it's high noon in the Twilight Zone. Very dramatic music there at the end. So, yeah. Uh, do we want to do like a five-minute recap of the episode and then just call it a night? No, I'm joking. We're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, fortunately, there's not way too much of this episode. Um, so I, I totally hit my volume button while I was unmuting. Do I sound okay? Yeah, you sound fine. I do, Sorry, You're, you're super excited but <laughs> about, uh, about Leonard Nimoy and Michael Pataki. So I understand. I understand why you wanted to press that button. So... And also Ralph Votre and whatever his name is. Hanacek. I know you want to talk about him some more, too. So. <laughs> he didn't even, yeah. didn't even pronounce his name. Oh, I don't man. know. It's Vo- Votrian. I don't know how you say that. Votrian? Ralph? Yeah, that's like, a, anyway, so whatever. That's I, the type of alien, I think. <laughs> it's there's from, like the grays. <laughs> there's the grays. There's the Votrians. There's the Nordics. <laughs> I, like, I like that the Votrians is, it belongs in like a Douglas Adams thing. It's like, oh, it's the Votrians. You just got to deal with that. And uh, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so this episode starts off August 6th, 1945. Um, there's a really nice tracking shot through the, the soundstage they have on the jungle where you see uh, the men working, like, well, sorry, the army people doing their thing. And it feels a lot more wider uh, and breathable than, like, the Purple Testament, where... Yeah, which was the other uh, Pacific set, Pacific Island set uh, war episode that we've seen so yeah. far. But both of them with titles from Shakespeare plays, by the way. So just to throw that out there, kind of odd. Yeah. yeah. 
So not well, the only connection. Interesting, yeah. interesting little connection between the two. Dean Stockwell was actually supposed to be the lead in Purple Testament, which ended up being replaced by Dick York. Yeah. So uh, interesting. It's just weird that Dean Stockwell was supposed to be in both like Pacific War stories that had Shakespeare titles. So eh, whatever. You know, um, you know, you have your Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption, you know, being very, very, very specific things. And it's kind of the same thing with us. So, yeah. All right. Anyway, I'm going to keep talking about other things other than this episode. And I feel bad for saying that because it's not a bad episode. It's just it is what it is. So please, let's just get through this. Yeah. So the platoon is basically uh, they're stationed to be spotters to give coordinates to where uh, where they need to bomb. So they find out that basically they can't reach the spot that they're supposed to reach with the bomb. So they're they're basically ordered to go down and uh, um, they're hoping that they're going to be ordered to just bypass it and mm-hmm. uh, leave it alone, not have to deal with it. Because well, this platoon of guys are pretty much just beaten down. They're done with this war. They don't want to see any more violence. They don't want to do anything else. They're they're tired. They're exhausted. They've seen way too much death and carnage. And they're just done. They also believe that the people in the cave are Japanese troops that are like wounded and hurting. So it's like not even a significant target. So they're kind yeah, of under and, the, yeah. And we're at the very end of the war here. So um, they just kind of feel bad that maybe they're not getting. Uh, a, a communication that the war is pretty much over yeah. and that maybe they should just surrender. And it seems like it would just be overkill to go in there and just take out uh, this whole group of Japanese uh, soldiers. Yeah. And I like that, um, that, uh, Oh, uh, what's his name? I was going to say, uh, I was going to say Coswell. That's his name. The other episode, but Carasano uh, uh, is, he's talking to one of his other people and they're looking, th- look through binoculars at the, the cave where the Japanese are. And because the, the 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 shells aren't hitting where they need to, they say that what was it? Um, he makes the comment about like when they can't move um, with the big stuff, they bring out the queen of the battle, the infantry, and I, it's it's a chess term of like the queen can move in all directions. So, yeah, that, that, so the infantry is like we're just gonna like if if we can't do it, we're gonna force them to do it, and it's like they they understand how how important they are, but at the same time how not important they are. And it's, it's, it's like, you're right. The fatigued and just worn out. You really, really get that. They, they look like, like twice baked over potatoes all in the sun, just like lounging around. Yeah. So then we get the, uh, intro from Serling, just kind of a pan over to him standing on the set. And, uh, I wish he was wearing a helmet or something. That'd have been great, but whatever. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah, whatever. We haven't gotten too many great, uh, Serling intros. Last week was good. Uh, yeah. I, I enjoyed last week, but this one, not so much like a pack um, of cigarettes rolled up in his like suit sleeve. That would have been amazing. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So at this point, a Jeep pulls up and, uh, a man, uh, Dean Stockwell as the Lieutenant, uh, jumps out and he's looking for the Sergeant. He basically tells him like, I'm taking over this platoon. I'm going to lead the charge into this cave. Um, we're going to go in there. So he grabs his binoculars and I, I love there's a moment, um, <laughs> when he puts the, the binoculars up, he hits his helmet with it. And the, <laughs> um, you can just see, uh, uh, what's the sergeant's uh, name? Sano, but like, so. even before he hands the binoculars yeah. over, like, uh, like, you know, uh, Cattell was just like, give me the binoculars, like without even looking directly at him. So he snapped his fingers yeah. through the binoculars and then brought them up and then dinged the top of his helmet. 
and then reset the binoculars. It was like a nice fast moment because there's the guy directly behind, uh, you know, behind him that's kind of like smirking and trying not to laugh at this like this this guy who is in his nice clean uniform and like you know all ready to go. So yeah, it said a lot there with very little. Yeah. And uh, he's a very intense guy. Mm-hmm. Like when you get introduced to him, he's ready. He wants to lead the charge straight in and kill everyone in that cave and everything. And you get some back and forth between him and the platoon that's there and them basically saying they don't want to do this. And um, uh, one of my favorite things is you find out that the last three officers that have come in to lead their platoon have been picked off by just doing slight hand movements above the binoculars in the, in the brush that they're sitting around. Well, yeah. Cause he tells me like the gold bar on your helmet is like, it's basically a target, you know? And like, um, yeah, it's, it's just kind of, you could tell that like that, that there's the reality of the situation. That's like, who's writing the story knows what happened then. And it was all about like taking out positions of authority and the guy's running to the front. Who's dressed, ready to go. Doesn't realize the danger he's putting himself in. Uh, it's a nice, it's a nice moment. Yeah, and the, it, some of that back and forth is fantastic. We're just talking about, and you played some of it in the beginning um, of this episode. Just like you haven't seen any, uh, um, you haven't seen any battle or anything. You're you're ready to go. We've seen too much. And like they're just like I said, they're done. They just want to go home. They just want to get this over with. Yeah, and he was like, and I know that you're all gung ho to like you know, do this, but you, I don't think you've killed anybody, you know? And it's like, there's, there's something to be said there where he's trying to speak to, uh, you know, his superior, but also saying like, you, you might be ready. You might think you're ready for this, but you don't know what you're doing in the sense of like, you know, what cost. And it's, it's a, it's a good moment as well. I keep saying it's a good moment. This whole, this whole thing has nice beats to it, but we'll get to how we feel about the episode at the end, but there's good character work in it. Like ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, and you see that he has really no regard for the Japanese soldiers in there, using a lot of racial slurs and everything, and uh, uh, not even uh, basically brainwashed in the way that a lot of military people are seeing the enemies as less than human. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, I love this about, um, say what you will about the Twilight Zone war episodes or any of the military-based ones, I love... Because you go back into the 50s and earlier with military and war movies and everything. Um, it's very jingoistic, very mm-hmm. rah-rah, like uh, depicting war as this very honorable thing and everything. Twilight Zone never depicts it as a glorified uh, a glorified action or anything it there's always that human element added to it of just like the morality of going to war and there's uh, all of the soldiers are very sensitive uh thoughtful people mm-hmm. and i i really appreciate seeing that uh, that aspect of it all the way back in 1961 because i mean a few years before this you have john wayne and like what what year was like green berets and everything well, yeah, and it's funny because, like, we just mentioned, um, was it the previous episode or the one before it, that uh, the U.S. Yeah, was starting to take no, activity? No, no, Green Berets was after. Oh, oh man. okay. Well, I'm way off, John Wayne so. always believed in the like the idealized dream of America versus, like, the truth of it at times, you know? So, yeah, I, 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 which he always kind of believed in, like, you know, the flag wave and we're the greatest country in the world. So he never got away from that. But, yeah, <laughs> this was like this was like two weeks out or a week out from 
America's first involvement in Vietnam. So you want to talk about like like messy and emotional. Like it's 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 interesting that Serling never he never blinked in the face of this trying to tell these stories. And I and I appreciate that. Yeah. And you can just see where his head was at. You can see him working through mm-hmm. some of the demons he had about going to war and everything. And uh, uh, I, I think this was very therapeutic for him to work on these types of episodes. Well, and also, you you know he saw all these character types, right? You know he saw the worn down and, you know, we're here to do a job, but, like, please don't make us do – like, we'll kill. You want us to kill, we'll kill. But don't just go in expecting that we're going to do this without like a, a clean conscience, you know. I'm sure he saw that. I'm sure he also saw these guys that were like like straight off the you know the convoy, just trying to do like make a name for themselves and show that they're good at war, you know. And there's even that bit where um, you know uh, Carasano's asking uh, Cattell like what like what's it going to take, um, and he said um, you know first day of the war, last day of the war, it doesn't matter, you know. If it's an enemy, we're going to kill it, and it's like it, it's very that it's very disturbing, but also it feels like it's very moored in the reality that you're talking about that there's human characters here, but they're the ones that want to prove something and they have to have a war to win, to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love there's a line I wrote down. Uh, I forget which character said it, um, but he said, we'll do some killing, mm-hmm. but don't ask us to stand up and cheer. Yeah. And, uh, like, that, that's, I, I love that because it's just like, yeah, we're, we're here to do a job, but like, we're not happy about it. <laughs> yeah. So um, I mean, they, 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 it's really, it's a good, it's a good table setting for what's about to happen. Yeah. So we cut to nighttime and, uh, they're all covering themselves in mud, trying <laughs> to get all, uh, all, all ready to go down and, and to uh, avoid the predator. Like that's what's going <laughs> like, yeah, <to> basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, please. So they all want to bypass and uh, bypass the cave. They don't want to even go into it. And the sergeant, uh, Casarano, uh, he is uh, he's basically saying, like, these are just wounded men in there. Like, what do we have to prove to go in there and beat them? And uh, they do a little size up between the two of them. And uh, Casarano really digs into the lieutenant's. Uh, why he thinks he's there. Mm-hmm. He calls him a Johnny come lately and that he's there just to prove his manhood. He realizes that time's running out to prove himself and he's got to come in and uh, do everything he can just to, uh, just to show that he can do it. Yeah. And that's where he says, what's your pleasure? How many people have to die? And then he says, first day of the war, last day of the war, it doesn't matter. And he's very, very direct about it, you know? So um, yeah, like, like they're, <laughs> There's a certain amount of like glory grabbing that you see going on here that is unfortunately very recognizable of being somebody that's late to the game that wants to, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, I, he I, wants to be the hero. Yeah. That's, uh, that's coming in too late that uh, he, they want to be the hero at any cost. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. then we get into some of the weird stuff here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he, um, what was it at one point? Like, so like when they're talking, like the binoculars that like, get knocked out of his hands or they fall and they crack. And so Cattell goes to uh, pick up the binoculars and then things are different. So, um, he picks the binoculars, sees that, uh, suddenly he's surrounded by Japanese troops 
and uh, he runs away, like like just like his like his head's on fire, like which you know to be fair, that's probably the right reaction to be like, oh, it's the enemy, I gotta go. And he just just hightails it out of there, you know. Yeah. So yeah. So he, he runs towards the cave entrance, and uh, credit to this episode, I didn't expect it to go into any uh, any action like this, but as he's running towards the cave, he's being shot at by an American soldier. Yeah. And he sees the, um, there's a crate that has, uh, the name of the area that they're in, which is, um, Oh, what's it called? I think, uh, Manila Bay or something. It's like Cor Corrigan. Something that's not the right words, but it's something like that where it's like, it's the, it's the same place that, that he sees that, Oh, it this is what's going is on. Cor Corridor. That's not Corridor. Yeah. Corridor in Manila Bay. Yeah. So, so, um, and so then he runs back to uh, safety and there's the whole thing where you start to realize that like, and, and you see him and he looks different. And, and then the soldiers there are referring to him as a Sergeant Yumori, or sorry, Lieutenant uh, Yumori. And I will say the first time I watched this episode, I did not realize that that was still Dean Stockwell. So credit to the makeup artist that they did what they did because they, they, changed him just enough to make him look like a Japanese soldier that I thought it was a different actor. Yeah. It took until, um, when he runs up to the cave entrance and there's a, there's a shot where he's crouching down and you can see the makeup caked on his face and everything. Yeah. And you can, you can tell that's a prosthetic and that I was like, Oh, that's what they're going for in this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's not terribly done. It's it's strange to see in 2018. It doesn't feel I'll, disrespectful I'll though. It's, it's it, not totally disrespectful. Yeah. The performance. Like I was, as soon as I realized what was going on this episode, my first reaction was like, "Uh oh, this is <laughs> this is uh, this is not going to age well." Yeah. But uh, credit to Dean Stockwell and uh, who did effects on this. This would have been. I didn't write that down. Yeah. Yeah, I, there's nobody listed as uh But the like the prosthetic, like they they you know, like obviously they they do stuff around the top of his face, whatever. It's like I but I said I honestly did not realize that it was the same actor. I did not realize it was Dean Stockwell because he actually changes his delivery uh of lines. Like his delivery is like you know, it's changed and uh his the way he says things, it's like it's very his his performance like changes completely. Uh, it it just I don't know. Like I feel like like it, it works so much better as him as Yamori that does as a uh, Cattell. I don't. It's, yeah. 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 So he's, he's very confused as he's uh, speaking with the rest of the Japanese soldiers. And he asks what the date is. And he finds out that it's May 4th, 1942, which we started out at uh, August 6th, 1945. So yeah. we're way earlier in the war. Um, this is before the Japanese have taken over the cave that they were staking out. And um, so you find out that he is somehow, he is Japanese now. And um, he's he's freaking out there and he's asked by one of the other soldiers if uh, they're about to leave where they're at and if they need to leave him behind if he's sick or anything, because he's mm. he's acting insane for all they know. He might have a so touch of he, malaria, is what they said. Just a touch of malaria, yeah, not full just on a malaria. Touch of it. Yeah, yeah. So he he kind of gets his bearings 
uh, and he kind of gets his, his stuff together and he realizes like, okay, he's like, I'm fine. I was feverish for a second. I'm fine. So he decides he's going to try and leverage this and save the American soldiers that are in the cave. And he basically makes, makes the same case that uh, Casarano was making earlier on the episode. And you get this, uh, this parallel of the whole conversation that he had with Casarano in the beginning of this episode um, between him and the, uh, uh, the sergeant, mm-hmm. uh, the Japanese sergeant in this, and uh, down to some of the same line deliveries oh, between yeah. the two of them. Well, he even says, like, you know, first day, last day, you know, like, the, it just comes back to him, and it just, like, shows him. Yeah, the, yeah. the what, what is your pleasure comes back. Yeah. Like, a lot of lines directly paralleling the beginning of the episode. Yeah, and, he, and the whole thing is, like, you can tell that he's panicking, and the whole, like, well, those are real people. Those are Americans. They're injured. And it's just, it's... It, it takes him seeing, well, if the tables were turned, they, they would show no mercy as well. And I, like, it, and I like and Stockwell's performance is really, really good in this. It's like he's very taken aback and very like suddenly like pleading. And I, again, that's why I thought it was a different actor. And not that I'm saying he wasn't capable of doing this, but it's like, like credit to him that I honestly thought it was a different person for most of this. Yeah. So then he ends up, uh, we cut back to him picking up the binoculars again. And uh, he is back where he was yeah. as an American soldier again. And, um, and this this is really where I was really impressed with Dean Stockwell. Because you can see in his face, there's very little line delivery from him at the end of this. But just the look on his face is incredible at the end of this. And... Um, you, you find out that they're about to drop the bomb on Japan and that it's going to end the war and uh, they're just going to bypass this cave and they don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. And you yeah. can tell that he's completely changed his mind on uh, his, and his outlook on war. So you like, how do you feel about like, how do you feel about like, he doesn't have to make the decision. Like, how do you feel about like, it's been, it's been taken out of his hands you know, the bomb's been dropped over, um, you know, uh, which was the first one, uh, you know, was it uh, Hiroshima was the first one, right? Yeah. So, yeah. like, how do you feel cool. about, like, him being told that, like, oh, well, we're just going to, like, we're going to pull back and see what happens. He doesn't physically have to make the choice to rush the cave now. How do you feel that, he, like, the decision's been taken out of his hands, even though he's been given this bizarre moment where he saw through the eyes of the enemy and realizes now the error of his ways. Like, do you feel like that's a bit of a cheat that he doesn't have to be the one to say, we're not going to do this. I I don't necessarily think so, because I think he would have made that same decision mm-hmm. after, uh, after going through this. So I, I don't necessarily think it's a cheat, uh, but I think it's nice that we don't have that. Obviously like that learning moment where he's like, <laughs> you know fair. what? We're not going to do it because now like everything happens behind him and you just get that that reaction, that performance from him. And he doesn't have to make that over the top decision to be like, you know what? I learned a lesson. We're going to show them so, I, a quality of mercy. <laughs> yeah. like. <laughs> so I feel like it's not necessarily a cheat. 
it's it just saves you that very obvious ending that you probably would have gotten if That's you would fair. have had to make the decision because he would have made that decision where this episode was going to bypass it. How do you feel so, about all the uh, crowd reactions after they find out that they're like you know not having to attack people? You hear the you know. Uh, Yahoo! In the I, I feel like that's way more energy than those guys would have had. <laughs> I don't care how happy you were uh, being stuck out in the jungle for however long they were there. Um, it would be more of like a Monty Python, like, and there was much rejoicing. Yeah, it, just, it felt like it felt like like a hootenanny was going on after they announced that the war was almost over. You know, so um, yeah, yeah. Uh, this was it was. You know, I, I can't say this is a bad episode. Um, no, it's not. It's, it's, just, it's not my favorite. No, no. Yeah, but like <laughs> watching it a second time and realizing, well, one, that there's Dean Stockwell in it and uh, Leonard Nimoy. Like it took me forever to figure out. I wouldn't even talk about Leonard Nimoy's like part in the episode because it's how unimportant it's so he was. <laughs> I love that we talked about it for 15 minutes. Um, he was like the radio yeah, guy. Yeah. No, I, I liked it was subtle and not subtle at the same time because the idea of binoculars being something that helps you see closer and more Mm -hmm. clearly, that was the changing factor to help him see from the other side just seems so on the nose. But at the same time, the way they did it was so subtle and so quick. It was disorienting. Yeah. I didn't know what uh, happened to start. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah, It it was, it was kind of confusing, but in a good way. Um, but once you realize you're like, uh, oh, binoculars, I mean, I guess it's kind of on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I liked the way they did it. It was that classic twilight zone. We're not going to explain this. Uh, this is just happening. You're on board or you're not. That's fair. So yeah, like, I mean, it was perfectly serviceable. The performances were, they, they were greater than the whole, I, I, that yeah, sounds kind of weird message. to me to say that. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where you don't want to bash the episode too bad because there is that great message and lesson learned. In it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. But it, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It, it's not one of those ones I would come back to a lot, much like most of the war episodes we've covered outside of maybe like two. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so um, two things I just want to mention here in my notes. One, Sam Wolf submitted the plot to Serling, but then failed to deliver a script. So Serling kind of bought the idea and then wrote the script. This was like one of two times where Sam Rolf like was like on board to do Twilight Zone stuff and then just didn't do it. So he got credit because of the story, but Serling pretty much wrote this, you know? So yeah, well, this um, is his only credit. What was the other uh, episode or did he just not follow he, through with he anything? He was signed on to do one, one other one and just didn't deliver. So I, it's, oh, just, okay. it's one of those situations where it sounds like he was way too busy and was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll do it. And then this didn't happen. So, um, so I think it's, I feel like they're like, you know, contractually obliged to say Sam Rolf came up with the idea, but if you throw a stone, it wouldn't land too far away from Sterling coming up with this idea, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's so to give him credit, it was more like, what if the like, what if we were fighting people, but then the guy fighting people realized that we're all the same people? That feels like something he ran on a napkin and give the Sterling. He'd be like, I have <laughs> seven different script ideas for this right now, you know? So, um, yeah, well, it's it's something that immediately probably appealed, much like last week where I said, uh, <laughs> I, w- I was talking about how the idea of that episode being a writer would have appealed to him being somebody who served 
in the military, like he probably had a lot of ideas and uh, uh, thoughts about this. I, I just feel like I feel like Marvin Petal contributed more to his episode than Sam Rolf contributed to this episode. But Sam Rolf's like the way more famous person for what he did, <laughs> you know. So whatever, it, it, it is what it is. But I thought that was interesting. And then also, I wanted to point out. Um, so. Uh, what, what do I have here? Um, so this was this story was supposed to be the first segment of the Twilight Zone movie. So, and it was the the have that like a racist kind of character go through different situations in which he is the person being persecuted, and it was supposed to have a happier ending. But we kind of know what happened with that first segment with Vic Morrow and the two kids that were unfortunately killed in a helicopter crash. So this was actually the quality of mercy was was the the jumping point off for that first segment in the Twilight Zone film. Um and Man. it's like you know and this one ends on a much more positive upbeat note and they weren't able to finish the segment because Vic Morrow had passed away so it, it has a much more darker ending with him being hauled off with all yeah. the other Jewish prisoners. Um which I'm sure we'll talk about that in 2 years when we get to the movie. But just to think of like like that was like the film that was supposed to have like the more upbeat ending. And it's like, that's way darker. And then to read about this and be like, Oh wow. That's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, yeah, this, this is a, this is middle of the road for me to yeah. be honest with this episode. Um, it's, it's been a long time. I've been holding off rewatching the movie, so I can't really speak to that first segment and, uh, what, what really compares to it trying to hold off until we finish through the series so I can get all the references and catch all the actors and <laughs> That's everything. Fair. Yeah. Um, so also Sam Rolf wrote an episode of quantum leap. I just wanted to mention that now, as opposed to like when we got to the, we got through all the talk about everything. So I think it's interesting that Sam Rolf Rolf wrote, 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 whatever wrote an episode of quantum leap. So he, <laughs> Dean Stockwell is Al, you know, and then Sam leaping, like this whole episode is all about like Dean Stockwell leaping from life to life, trying to set right what what's went wrong. So I feel like this was like the pilot for Quantum Leap. I feel like that's what <laughs> it's happened. It's a very early pilot for uh, Quantum Leap. <laughs> like Donald P. Belisario is watching this and being like, "I like that idea, and I like that Dean Stockwell. He could he's going places." So yeah. <laughs> all right. Anyway, yeah, I, yeah. That, that's really all I got for this one. Um, okay. I think we've pretty much overcovered <laughs> what this episode's trying yeah. to say. Let, let's uh yeah, let's just get to the twist and then we'll talk about the fun stuff coming up. Yep. I'm just going to give this a 3 just because the I did not I did not see the switching of places at the beginning of the episode. Um and then also just because I was just kind of wowed by Dean Stockwell like the second time I watched it, like I, the twist was I didn't expect the performance and also the makeup working pretty well. And that, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm giving it a five as, uh, uh the makeup not being <laughs> completely racist. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That could have been really that was, bad. That was the twist. I, I honestly, when I realized what was going on, I had immediate repulsion from this episode, <laughs> but, uh, they pull it off somehow, some way. It is not completely disrespectful. Um, no, I, I, I'm, I agree with you. I think it's a three. I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And once you, once you figure out they switch places, it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, but the whole eventual twist of him realizing that like, maybe he should show some sort of mercy, um, with the other, with the, Japanese soldiers and everything. You kind of see it coming. Uh, the fact that he didn't have to make the decision, uh, 
like I said, I kind of appreciate it because we didn't get that like aha moment yeah. of like, you know what? We're going to bypass them. You know, I had an epiphany, um, but it, it's just kind of kind of middle of the road. So I think a three is uh, more than generous for this twist. <laughs> that, yeah, that's where I'm landing at. So, all right, that's going to do it for a quality of mercy. Um, Kevin, how can people find us? You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Strange Highways Podcast. You can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to let us know what you thought about this episode or any of the episodes we've discussed, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, anywhere you can find podcasts. We are there. Um, and it would really help us out if you would head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating on there. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, so, uh, some programming notes, um, I could go into what the next episode of Twilight Zone is, but that's not what we're doing next. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we got, uh, part one of our Halloween extravaganza coming next week. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so tell people, tease people what's going on. Like, so we're not going to do an actual episode of strange highways next week, but it's going to be kind of a crossover. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the infinity war of podcasts. Not really. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's, that makes it sound amazing. Right. So no, it's, it's more of the Batman versus Superman, a podcast that no, no, that's worse. That's worse. Civil war. uh, Yes. That's better. Yeah. There'll be opposition. There'll be, uh, there'll be fighting. No, not really. Um, so yeah, yeah what's probably. going on? Maybe, maybe some, fun yeah. Things. So, so next week we're going to be, uh, going on, uh, El Goro's fantastic podcast, talk without rhythm. We're going to be discussing two British films. One, uh, from the great studio Amicus we're doing from beyond the grave, which is one of my favorites, uh, especially in October. I usually end up watching it, uh, unprovoked every October. <laughs> so it's going to be exciting, uh, to actually discuss it with some other people. And uh, then we're covering a film from this year, which is kind of a throwback from those uh, Amicus anthology films called Ghost Stories, which I have not seen. So this is going to I'm going in blind on this one. Uh, just my love for British horror. I'm looking forward to it. So it's, it's going to be fun. We were going to do an episode where we were going to cover from beyond the grave uh, this month. And uh, Ian was. Uh, Good enough to have us come on his show to do it. So we're going to do this nice crossover next week. Yeah. So I'm sure we'll we'll let everybody know when it happens. So, um, so after that, um, the, the week after we will be doing uh, nothing in the dark. Um, I guess I should just go through the Serling bits here so that people know what's going to go on. So I, uh, so I'll change his, uh, his, 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 uh, dialogue appropriately. Two weeks from now, <laughs> an excursion into the Shadowland of the Hereafter. Uh, Ms. Gladys Cooper and Mr. Robert Redford uh, combine sizable talents to bring you a script by George Clayton Johnson entitled Nothing in the Dark. The dark in this case being the little nooks, crannies, and closets of the regions uh, presided over by Mr. Death. I hope you'll be with us in two weeks for Nothing in the Dark. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And then we'll talk about Robert Redford and, you know, his famous roles and the gif of him nodding in approval at us. <laughs> like, so, so yeah. So next week, uh, amazing epic crossover. We'll talk about rhythm in two weeks, nothing in the dark. So, um, yeah, that's going to do it for, for us this week. Uh, longer yeah, episode. Some other, uh, some other surprises oh, at the end of the month. So yeah, we'll get there. Please, we'll get there. Uh, head over to the Facebook page and keep an eye on over there for, uh, some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 
Uh, yeah, it's going to be some surprises. It's going to be, it's a fun month. It's a busy month. It's a fun month. Uh, so yeah, that's going to do it for us this week. Um, nothing funny to say, like, just be kind to people because that you should be, you shouldn't be a dick that, you know, that's, that's it. So I got nothing else. Yeah. We're all humans. Uh, I guess don't be a Nazi. (laughs) I feel like I have to do it again. Right. That's fair. Back in world war two. So. They figured the bomb will end the war in a couple of days. They want the units to pull back and see what happens. All right, on your feet, everybody. Let's get ready to move out of here. You with us, Lieutenant? <laughs>